Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. A reality that is far too often overlooked, both by the unbelieving world as well as the believing world, is the reality of the judgment of God. God is creator of all, and as creator, he has established the standard by which all things are to operate. He is the author of all things and therefore has authority over all things. As creator, as author, as the one who has established the standard by which all things should operate, he's also the one by whom all things will come into judgment. It's easier for the world to reject the notion of the judgment of God, particularly when they largely reject the reality of God altogether. I mean, if there's no God, no supreme being who has created all things, and there's no need to discuss judgment, there's no one standard, no one to whom we are accountable, no time set in the future for that accountability to be measured out, no one to look upon our actions today to determine if they are in accord with that standard that has been set. We can live however we want today, and we don't have to worry about tomorrow. It's easier for the world to conceive of an existence where their actions ultimately do not matter to anyone of significance. It is a balm to the conscience. It is motivation to seek whatever standard you desire, live however you want, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and go off to oblivion. This is as good as it gets. This is our best life now. Perhaps they conceive of a world in which there is a God, but he's all love and no judgment. Yes, he is God, but in order for him to love, he cannot judge anyone for any reason. Love and judgment are incompatible in this view. And again, this provides a license that they need to live according to their own judgment. Because whatever they judge to be right, however they choose to live, this God will accept. He's a pushover. He's a patsy, an idol a God of their own making who does their will. And in the end, he will welcome them into a heaven that they have conceived of, that they have not labored for nor earned in any way, but that is freely granted to them on the basis of the love of this God and on the basis of the fact that they have lived their life to the fullest extent of their imagination. While it is easier for the world to conceive of a reality in which there is no God or a reality in which God is essentially impotent to judge anyone's actions, it is utterly inconceivable for the people of God to think and to act as if there is not a God who judges. Again, the very premise upon which the whole revelation of God stands are the first words in Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The testimony of Genesis goes on to state very plainly that the one who created in the beginning is also the one whose standard of goodness evaluated 
all of that creation. For we have the repetition in those first words of Genesis as God created and he saw that it was good. In those first chapters of Genesis, we saw a God who's both creator and evaluator. He both created all things and judged the worthiness of what he created. Subsequently, we saw his act of judgment towards the first humans who disobeyed his direct commands for them and the consequences that he gave to them. And as we continue in the progress of Revelation, we see an unfolding drama indicating how this God, the creator, intends to resolve the conflict between him and the humanity that he created. He has judged them unworthy of life, but has in mercy determined to save some of them from their consequence. He does not disregard his judgment, but instead designs a way for his judgment to be satisfied and the people to be pardoned. And ultimately, his judgment is satisfied in the death of his son. In other words, the people of God are made the people of God because the judgment of God for humanity has fallen upon the perfectly obedient son of God in order for some to be pardoned from the consequences of their disobedience. The believer cannot escape the reality that God cares how we live. He cares so much that he sent his son to live an obedient life, not just to be an example, but to be a sacrifice and to die the death of a sinner for our pardon. And again, in doing so, it was his intent not only to rescue some from the penalty of their sin, but also to set them apart to live as his obedient son in the world. In the words of Paul in Ephesians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God cares how we live. He sent his son to redeem us from disobedience and to set us apart for obedience. The reality of David's words in Psalm 1 continue to ring true throughout both the Old and New Testaments. There is a coming judgment. There will be a judgment both for the wicked and the righteous. The wicked are those who have not had the son for a savior. The righteous are those for whom the savior died. Those who are righteous will stand in the judgment. Those who are wicked will not stand in the judgment. That day has been fixed. Paul says in Acts 17, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That day is coming. The question is, which group will you be a part of? Will you be a part of the group of those who have lived as if there is no judgment and no God? Or will you be a part of the group of those who have lived in light of the judgment, having trusted in the gift of the Son whose death is paid for your sins and made you righteous before God, made you fit to stand in the judgment? That's a good question to ponder as we continue in our series in the letter of James. James, the half-brother of Jesus and leader in the church of Jerusalem, wrote to primarily Jewish believers at a time when the church initially began. James's letter was written to encourage those first believers in Jesus to persevere. He wanted to encourage them to have faith, a faith that perseveres in spite of the difficulties of life, in spite of the challenges that they face in a normal course of life, as well as the challenges they face for their faith in Jesus. James wanted to encourage them to remember that true faith, genuine faith in Jesus is a faith that works. It is a faith that is lived out. There should be a clear indication that someone has faith in Jesus because of how they live their lives, and that should be true regardless of the circumstances. 
True faith is given by God. It is a new life granted by God as one comes to know the word of truth, the gospel, according to James 1.18. True faith is joyful in the midst of trials, knowing that God is working them, James 1, 2, and 3. True faith prays, seeking God for wisdom to know how to respond well, James 1, 5. True faith perseveres under trials, looking forward to the reward of God, James 1, 12. True faith does not play the blame game when it comes to our sin, but acknowledges our sin as a result of us succumbing to the desires of our flesh. James 1, 13 and 14. True faith trusts in God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. James 1, 17. True faith seeks that which will lead to the righteousness of God. Only that which leads to his righteousness and therefore is a doer of the word and not a hearer only. James 1.19 and also 23. True faith understands that religion is not a matter of man's perspective. But rather true religion is a matter of what God sees as pure and undefiled. It is shown in works of mercy to those who are the most vulnerable. James 1.26 and 27. And for that matter, true faith shows mercy to all, even to those who are deemed the least valuable in the greater society. That's James 2, 1 through 13. We've talked about the nature of wisdom literature before, particularly when I've preached from the, Psalm, the Proverbs. Wisdom literature seeks to encourage living well in a world in which God is the sovereign ruler and judge. It is as Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, the end of the matter as all after all has been heard, is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Wisdom literature seeks to encourage us to live well in this world, knowing that the judgment of God is coming. James's writing style is very similar in a number of ways to wisdom literature. In particular, in that way, as James frequently references the judgment of God that is to come. And this awareness of the final judgment of God drove not only James, but also the other apostles. I've referenced this text before, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, conduct yourself with fear during the time of your stay on earth. Back to the letter of James. James has communicated a clear message to the church. He continues to throughout the letter that there is a future judgment in which we will stand before Jesus Christ and will face judgment for the deeds that we've done in our body. We will not fall to the same condemnation of the unbeliever because there's no condemnation for us. Mercy shall triumph over judgment for those who have come to know the mercy of God. But there will be a judgment nonetheless. And there will be blessing and reward for those who have known the mercy of God and therefore been merciful to others. And there will be a rejection of those who have not. 
James's expectation is that those who truly know Christ, those who have been brought forth by the word of truth, those who have a pure and undefiled religion in the sight of the Father, these will be merciful. They will show mercy even as they have been shown mercy by the Lord. Their true faith will manifest itself in good works. They'll respond to the call of God, perhaps not perfectly, but they will respond as an expression of their faith in obedience to the Lord. Those who do not respond to the call of God to live out their faith, who have no good works, no works of mercy, likely never had faith to begin with. James intends to underscore this truth in the section that we'll consider for this morning. Again, true faith works. Those who lack true faith will have no works to show. Nevertheless, true faith works, and this has always been true for the people of God. Now more than ever, I think this message is important for us. It's important for us in a world increasingly more reliant on feeling comfortable in church rather than being challenged in their faith. So many want to come to nothing more than a glorified country club, a place made in their, their own image where no one ever speaks of wrongdoing, of sin, where they're made to feel comfortable about their spiritual life and where everyone just gets along. True faith works. If there are no good works accompanying your salvation, if you're more concerned with yourself, your needs, your comfort, your glory, than you are with serving your brothers and sisters in Christ, serving Jesus himself, walking in the good works that please him, then you can have no confidence in the faith that you are his. And you will have no confidence when you stand before him in judgment. That's probably a bit of, bit more of an introduction than you were expecting, but I think it's important for us to reestablish and just to rethink, to contextualize James's argument before we dive in again to the second part in chapter two. Well, we'll read chapter two again for context, and then we'll focus in on verses 14 through 26. James chapter two. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in also, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are, being, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have work, works, can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let us pray. Father, we come before your word humbled. We come before your word and we ask that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in your word. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this section, we'll see James's logical presentation of a very essential truth of that kind of forms the basis for the whole letter. Again, true faith works, and faith without works is dead. That's really the main point. So James makes a clear proposition in verses 14 through 17, again, that faith without works is dead. He addresses some comments from the opposition in verses 18 through 19. They claim that faith and works are unrelated. He lays out a demonstration of his point in verses 20 through 25. True faith is justified by works. And finally, we see his proposition restated in verse 26. Faith without works is dead. His proposition, comments from the opposition, a demonstration of his point, and then his proposition restated. Well, let's look at his proposition again that faith without works is dead from verses 14 through 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the need, things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says, first, faith without works will not save you in your hour of judgment. Again, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not works? Can, can that faith save him? What good is it? James will ask this question again at the end of verse 16. The question is very practically oriented. What good is that kind of faith? How is it going to help? How will it help someone if they say they have faith but there's nothing to show that they have faith? 
He says, can that kind of faith save a person? Well, save him from what? In context, the most obvious reference is that of the judgment. Again, just a couple of verses earlier in verse 12, James said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Again, a day is coming when we will all face the judgment. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of our deeds will be laid open and bare before him. The question is for you who claim to have faith in Jesus, what will Jesus see when he looks at your works? Will he only see a statement of faith, a proclamation of faith? At some service that you attended five months, five years, 15 years, 25 years ago, I said I believed in Jesus. Is that all he's going to see? Jesus is going to ask, what do you have to show for that proclamation? There may be some of you here today who made a profession of faith in Christ, and yet you have nothing to show for it. You have said to people over and over again that you are a Christian. You go to church, and therefore you are a Christian. You went up to an altar call on Sunday morning and professed faith in Christ, and so you're a Christian. Your name is on a roll as a member of a church, and so you're a Christian. You tell everyone that you go to church again on Sunday mornings. You have a Bible that you bring with you every Sunday, even though it sits dormant on your table Monday through Saturday. You know how to say hallelujah, praise the Lord on Sunday morning. But that kind of talk is usually reserved only for Sunday morning. And Monday through Saturday, you talk like a normal person. You claim the name of Christ proudly on Sunday morning. You who say I have faith, but do not have works. Do you think that this kind of faith, a word only kind of faith will save you when you stand before Jesus in judgment? The very nature of the judgment is a judgment in which all of your deeds will be examined. If you have no deeds that communicate faith when you stand before Jesus in judgment, do you think that your profession alone will save you? Well, you remember, Jesus, I prayed the sinner's prayer, right? You heard that. They put me on the roll in church. So that must mean that I'm good, right, Jesus? You, you got me. Again, we're talking about works that accompany salvation, works that display true and genuine faith. I mentioned these earlier. True faith is joyful. True faith prays. True faith perseveres under trial, looking forward to the reward of God. True faith does not play the name game when it comes to sin. True faith trusts in God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. True faith seeks that which will lead to the righteousness of God. True faith is a doer of the word and not a hearer only. True faith understands that religion is not a matter of man's preference, but a matter of God's perspective. True faith, true faith is shown in works of mercy. And that's just from the letter of James. If you breathed out your last breath tonight, perhaps in the next five minutes, and you stood before the Lord of glory and were judged according to the law of liberty, would he see your true faith lived out in your life or would he see just a profession of faith alone? Have you truly been born again by the word of truth? Is there evidence that you've been born again? Again, this is not perfectionism. This is the simple reality of the new birth that both Jesus and the apostles communicated clearly to the church. Just as you possess one kind of life at your first birth, you possess a different kind of life at your new birth. And it ought to be different. Can the kind of faith that is profession only save you? The implied answer is no. The 
kind of faith that has no accompanying works will save no one in the final judgment. If the reason why is not clear enough, James goes on. Faith without works will not save you in the judgment, nor will it save another brother in the hour of need. Christ saved us in order to do good works is the implication. Therefore, if we do no good works, that kind of faith is worthless. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Much of what James has said concerning our love for one another can be summarized by the word mercy. Again, true faith, genuine faith, is a merciful faith. Mercy is a hallmark of the salvation that we have from the Lord. We referenced the passage in Titus 3 many times, many times before. We were dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. We were wretches, but God didn't give us what we deserved. Instead, he saved us, not by works that we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, Titus 3. If God has thus acted towards us, we are also compelled to act that way towards one another. The basis for how we interact with each other is the work of God, not our own perception of one another. John says it this way, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he cannot see. If he does not love his brother whom he cannot see, he cannot love. If he does not love God, well, if he does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're compelled to love because of the love of God poured out on us. We're compelled to love because God has loved sacrificially, not merely in word, but also in deed. These good deeds done for one another is the very reason for which Christ gave himself up for us. He gave himself up for us to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good deeds. We're zealous to love and to be merciful. Again, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the need, things needed for the body. What good is that? Now, we don't know if this is an actual situation that James is referencing. We do know that relations between those who are rich and poor was a real issue in the church, if only for James's frequent references. He's already pointed out that some of the poor were being treated with partiality. They were being given lowly places to sit in the congregation or else places completely out of the way, as opposed to those who are rich who were being given a more prominent place to sit. Now consider that these same poor were not only being given inferior treatment in the congregation, but also those who saw them and knew their condition did nothing to help them. 
In our churches, we generally talk about having mercy ministries where a few people who are gifted at mercy can operate. We talk about benevolence funds, which generally operate, again, under the guidance of deacons who assist members as they have financial needs. So those things are all good. However, the implication of James's word in this passage is that acts of mercy for those who are in need is not to be a ministry relegated to one or two people within the church. It's not to be a concern only for those who are particularly gifted with mercy. Mercy ministries, the act of seeing legitimate needs within the body of Christ, say, for example, a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. That kind of ministry is a ministry for every member of the body of Christ. To do otherwise is to have a faith that is useless. Again, James says, what good is that? How does it help? That's not a helpful kind of faith. Our faith, genuine faith, is a merciful faith, a love one another as yourself kind of faith, a faith oriented towards loving God, loving as God has loved, sacrificially, not just in word, but also in deed and in truth, zealously in deed and in truth. If that's the case and you see a need, then you ought to help. I'll make this comment too. Often we say that we cannot help and we may think that we cannot help, but sometimes we're just deceiving ourselves. Let me ask you this, and I don't need a show of hands, but think about this. How many of you have nice cell phones with nice cell phone plans? How much does that cost? How many of you have nice vehicles with nice vehicle costs? How many of you have multiple streaming services or even one cable or Verizon package with the exact and specific shows that you like? How much does that cost? How many of you go shopping for new or newer clothing regularly? Have your hair styled or cut at an expensive stylist or barber? How many of you go out frequently to eat, go on frequent vacations, frequent parties? How many of you have those expensive hobbies that you keep up? How many of you don't have much but always seem to have extra for alcohol or cigarettes or video games or other such vices? We say that we cannot help, but often what we mean is, if I were to help, I would have to cut back on a number of luxuries that I'm accustomed to, and I'm simply not willing to do that right now. We tend to satiate our conscience with those religious kind of platitudes, be warm and filled, or I'll pray for you. Obviously, it's not wrong to pray for someone. We ought to be playing, praying for others. But sometimes when we say, I'll pray for you, our heart's not really in it. And again, what we're actually saying is, I'm just not interested in sacrificing for you right now. But I hope that God will provide for your needs. I'll ask, just as James asked, what good is that kind of faith? The kind of faith that is not interested in being merciful is a benefit to no one. I've said many times before that God has designed the body of Christ, again, such that our faith is lived in community. And as we saw from Titus, we are to be zealous for good deeds. My faith is designed to be a blessing to you. I need to be zealous in exercising my faith and the gifts that God has given me to be a blessing to you. Your faith is designed to be a blessing to me and to one another. And so you need to be zealous in exercising your faith and using the gifts that God has given you and whatever God has provided for you to be a blessing to each other. 
That's the way the body of Christ is designed by God. That's the way it works. That's how everyone's needs are met. If I'm seeking to meet your need and you're seeking to meet my need with what God has given to you, then we'll all be taken care of. But if I'm more concerned about meeting my own need and getting what I want, then both of us are going to lack. James goes on, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Any kind of faith that does not have accompanying works is dead. It's lifeless. It's useless. It will be of no benefit to you in the day of judgment. It will be no benefit to your brothers and sisters in Christ today. That's the very reason for which Christ died for you, so that you would be zealous for good deeds, to be a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that your kind of faith? As you think about your faith, as you think about your life, as you think about standing before the Lord of glory to give an account for how you've lived your life in word or in deed, will he see a faith that is full of works of mercy, works of love, from a life that's been impacted by the mercy and love of God? Will he see a life that has professed faith in him, but in the final analysis has done nothing about it? in James's proposition faith without works is dead second point in the text is a word from the opposition they will claim that faith and works are unrelated verses 18 and 19 someone will say you have faith and I have works show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works you believe that God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder now we don't know who the opposition is here Perhaps the rich in the congregation who accepted the exalted seat in the front of the congregation, who ignored the needs of the poor with the platitudes, be warm and filled. Whoever it is, even if it's not a wealthy person, but someone who simply refused to show mercy to those in need, they are here looking for a way to justify their lack of mercy. After all, they did wish the person well, right? Go in peace, be warm and filled. They seek to justify themselves by drawing a distinction between faith and works or acts of mercy. You have faith and I have works. There's been a lot of discussion around how to understand this statement and who is speaking. One suggestion that I, I kind of like is that it was perhaps a teacher who was wrongly drawing a distinction between those who have faith, meaning those who would say, go in peace, be warm and filled. And by implication, they're showing, quote unquote, showing their faith by trusting God to provide for the individual. Whereas I have works may indicate that someone else is the one to actually satisfy the need. So, for example, the rich person may pronounce a blessing on someone who's poor, be warm and filled. And the teacher who wants to ingratiate themselves to the rich may say, hey, that was very nice of you. That was kind. You're displaying your faith. And then the teacher will say, I have a few coins here. I'll give to the poor man. You have faith. I have works. We're all good. The implication is that one can have a healthy faith and not show it by their works. I remember a number of years ago, and there still are some who think this way, there was a lot of conversation around this idea of being a backslidden Christian, a phrase that's nowhere in the New Testament. Or they may refer to carnal Christians. The word carnal is a King James translation of a word that Paul uses to refer to believers who are acting fleshly, unspiritual, or worldly. This concept of backsliding Christians and carnal Christians are essentially the same kind of teaching. At the root of the teaching is that some Christians have accepted Jesus as Savior, but not submitted to him as Lord. 
And so out of this was born a whole unhealthy theology of the need to be rebaptized, to recommit your life to Christ. The idea that you can, again, trust him to save your soul from hell, but still live like you just crawled up from the pit of hell yourself. There were a lot of people who believed this and probably still do. That's why we have a lot of people in our churches today who think they're Christians when they've never been born again and they have no work to show that their faith is genuine. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're putting your faith in one who is Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior is Lord. You cannot distinguish between the two. There's no doctrine in the Bible that would ever assume otherwise. The very same text in which Jesus made clear to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says this in John chapter 3. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He has established that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He's been given all things. And then he goes on. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now you can miss this, but there are two concepts that are put in parallel to one another. He says, whoever believes, this is John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Well, that sounds great. We get that. But look at the second half. You would expect it to read, but whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. That's not what he says. He says, whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not have life. And so he links faith and obedience in that same passage. Because the one who would come to Jesus as Savior must obey his lordship, period. Faith and obedience are always linked together. Look again at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James's response, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You cannot separate faith and obedience. They were always understood to be together. True faith obeys. True faith is manifested in one's works of obedience to Christ, works of mercy, works of love, works of righteousness. You cannot separate faith and works. You cannot see faith unless it is lived out, done, worked. He illustrates further in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. You say you have faith in the one true and living God. That's great. That's wonderful. But the demons believe in the one true and living God. And they fear him. So just saying that you believe in God means nothing. If that's all, if you just say that you have faith in God and you do nothing about that faith, then you're just like the demons. Congratulations. Faith alone, if it is not accompanied by works that express that faith, is dead. It's no faith at all. Again, James is dealing with the argument of the, op- the opposition, but he further he gives a further demonstration of his point, verses 20 through 25. He says, let me show you something, verses 20 through 25. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot justified, Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? 
He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is not trying to be politically correct here. He's trying to make sure that they understand that it is foolish to think that faith and works can be separated. He says, let me take you back to our roots, the roots of our faith, to our father, Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And one of the reasons why James is such a debated text for, for so many years stems from this section. When James, it, what is James talking about here when he says that Abraham was justified by works? Now Paul talks a great deal about justification. We read this earlier, this passage from Romans chapter 4. Paul's teaching on justification formed the foundation of the Reformation. The Protestant church was born on the basis of the conviction that justification before God is only by faith in Christ. We read Romans chapter 4 earlier. Paul said, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our father according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. Paul, this is the same text that James is referencing. And he says, now to the one who works, his wages is not counted as a gift, but as his due. And you get what he's saying here, right? He says, let's take a look at Abraham. And James, uh, Paul, and for his part, is trying to prove that justification is by faith. It is by believing in God alone believing God's word alone and so he references Abraham and the text in Genesis is very clear Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness righteousness comes by faith not by the law that's what Paul is trying to convince them of in Romans 4 he says to the one who works his wages are counted as a not as a gift but as his due he says if you work for salvation then you're just being paid what you're due but salvation is not about works. It's about grace. It's a gift. If it's a gift, then it cannot involve your work. He says in verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He goes on to explain why this is true for Abraham and why Abraham is the father of all who believed. In verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was it counted? Was it before he was circumcised or after? Did, was Abraham said, that was it said in Genesis that Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness before the law or after the law? Before Abraham received circumcision or after circumcision? And the text is very clear that it came before Abraham was circumcised. There was no indication of circumcision. There was no indication even of the giving of the law. I mean, Abraham and Moses are separated by many generations. So this wasn't about Abraham's works. This was about his faith, in other words. He says in verse 16, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of all. And then he talks about Abraham's faith in hope against hope. He believed that he should become the father of many nations. This is what God promised to him in Genesis 15. You will be a, a great nation. I will make you a great nation. You will have a son come from your loins, from you and Sarah, not from someone else, not going to be a servant in your house, and Abraham's like, I'm 100 years old, but I guess God's going to make a way. Sarah's been barren all of her life, but I guess God's going to make a way. He has to. He said he's going to do it, so I'm just going to trust him. 
Humanly speaking, it doesn't look like it's going to work, but God said it, and I'm going to believe it. And the text says, because he believed God, his faith was counted as righteousness. And Paul makes the point that it is likewise for us, because we believe God, our faith is counted as righteousness. Because we believe the Lord Jesus Christ. God credits the righteousness of Christ to us. If this is true, what in the world is James talking about? Well, James is not talking about justification by faith. He's not talking about being saved from our sin. He's talking about the fruit of being born again. James is talking about those who are already born again or at least claim to be born again, not those who need to be born again, but those who claim to be born again, what should their faith look like? Their faith ought to have works. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved for good works, and therefore there ought to be works present if you are born again, if you are a believer. Reference Romans chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I'm not going to read it again, but you know what it is. By grace, we're saved through faith, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Back to the text, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? James's concern and point in referencing Abraham was in the expression of his faith. James is not concerned with whether or not Abraham was justified before God. His point is that Abraham's faith was justified. The statement that he had faith in God was justified. When it says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and his faith was counted as righteousness. How do we know that he believed God? Well, fast forward to Genesis 22 when Abraham's faith is tested and he offers Isaac up on the altar. Why on earth would he do that unless he believed that God was able to even raise his son from the dead if he offered him up on the altar? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Abraham had such an unswerving faith in God that he was willing to even offer Isaac up on the altar. And that act of obedience was the justification of his faith. It was an expression of faith. It was a clear indication of his unwavering faith in God. And that's James's point. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness when he offered up Isaac on the altar and he was called a friend of God. That testing proved in no uncertain terms that Abraham believed God. And because he believed God, he was counted as righteousness, righteous. The declaration of righteousness was confirmed by his works and that he was called a friend of God was also confirmed. A friend loves at all times. A friend trusts and has confidence in one another. And that's what Abraham displayed when in obedience to God's command, he offered up Isaac on the altar. And he gives one more illustration in verse 25. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out in another way. And this story of Rahab we see in Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua sends in some men to spy out Jericho. And they, they end up coming across uh, Rahab and they stay in her household. And she hides them from the king. The king of her nation heard that there were men from Israel and that they had come into the city and they were clearly looking for them. Rahab says this when she talks to the men. 
She says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. She said, we heard, our nation heard about you. We heard about what your nation did to those other two kingdoms. And so we've been on the lookout. We've been on high alert. And as soon as you guys came in, the king sent word to my house and asked about you. But I'm hiding you now. I'm hiding you because I believe in the Lord. Listen to what she says. Again, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she asked for them to have favor on her, to deliver her household when they came into the city to take the city. She believed God. She heard about the Lord. She heard about what the Lord did through Israel, and she believed. And she showed that she believed by hiding the two spies and sending them out in a way that would not get them caught. She demonstrated faith by an act of what can only be described as treason to her country because she believed in the Lord. Well, again, James stated his proposition clearly in verses 14 through 17. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is both useless to those around you and that faith will not save you in the judgment. He addressed the opposition who claim that faith and works are unrelated. They who claim such thing are just trying to excuse their lack of mercy And the reality is that faith alone has never been indicative of saving faith. Even the demons believe God and fear him. Faith is a, moreover, James demonstrates his point by referencing both Abraham and Rahab. They both indicated their faith by their works. And finally, James restates his proposition again in verse 26. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. In case we haven't gotten the point, James uses another analogy to drive home. To underscore this truth, the body apart from the spirit is dead. When the breath of life leaves a body, it is dead, useless, lifeless, good for nothing. As we heard from James earlier, what good is it if you have faith without works? The body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's lifeless. Thus again, we're left with a question. Do you have a dead faith or a living faith? Again, if you were to take an honest look at your life, since you profess faith in Jesus, have you seen or has anyone seen works that show your faith in the true and living God, the Lord who is God of heaven above and earth below? True faith works. Faith without works is no faith at all. It is, to the contrary, dead faith. True faith ultimately works because the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it because the workmanship of God never fails because we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God doesn't have any problem with working out your faith in you. But if there's no works, then there's no faith. I fear that when we get to heaven, We will look around and see the faces of some who we expected, some who were unexpected, and that we will not see the faces of some who we expected to see. Again, some whose names were on the rolls beside our own, some who traversed the same halls as we did, who sat in the pew next to us, who served with us in ministry, but whose hearts were not right before the Lord. 
Those to whom the Lord will say on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. I pray that you all who hear my voice will, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. I would not have anyone's blood on my head. I have preached the gospel to you as clearly as I can. And I would implore you, all of you who hear my voice, if you do not know that you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, that God has granted to you the new birth, if you have no recollection of good works accompanying your profession of faith, do not let the sun go down on another day. If you know someone for whom that is true, who claim to be a Christian, but there are no accompanying works, do not let the sun go down on another day for them without pleading with them that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. Today is a day where mercy and forgiveness and grace are offered. When you stand before Jesus to face him in the final judgment, there is no more room for mercy. There will be no offer of mercy, no offer of grace. Examine yourselves. If we need to talk to someone about it, I'm here. If not me, find another mature believer to talk with. But you make sure that you make your calling and election sure before the Lord and you're right with the Lord today. As a body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Father, we commit our lives to you. We know that you are the one who gives new life. You grant new life by faith in your son. We know that there's no other way, that our good works will not earn salvation for us. But at the same time, on the flip side of the coin is that once we have put our faith in Jesus, if there is new life, then we ought to live like there's new life. We ought to express our faith by our good works, our works of mercy most clearly seen with one another. If there are any who are unsure of their calling in you, I pray that you would help them to get right with you today. And for those who do know you, who have confidence as they've seen you at work in their lives and they've seen works of mercy in keeping with the faith, Father, would you give them a greater confidence in you? And would you give them, strengthen them to continue to do good works, to excel, to be fervent in spirit, serving you and serving their brothers and sisters in Christ. And in this way, to make their calling and election sure. And I pray that for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.